This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. As mentioned on last week's program, we will be speaking today with author Buddy Levy about his book, Labyrinth of Ice, The Triumphant and Tragic Greeley Polar Expedition. That we plan to do in our second segment today, so you should stick around for that. I want to start this segment by referring back to last week's program. We very much enjoyed our talk with Greg Bell, host of the classic radio programs on Sirius XM and also proprietor of a website, radiospirits.com. We sometimes chat with our guests after we've concluded the interview, and last week we, we had a rather fun discussion about things that didn't necessarily make it into the interview or should have, but I, I had to laugh when he mentioned that when we first contacted him, he reached out to find out what we were all about. Having been a radio producer himself, I think he wanted to know what he was getting into, so we pulled up a previous show of ours wherein I was talking about Beetlejuice. As you are no doubt well aware from the news media and our discussions on the matter, the star Beetlejuice is ailing right now. It is really dropping in brightness. It's gone from being a top 10 brightness star to not even in the top 20. When we talked about this, I mentioned how this kind of freaked me out. Greg Bell hearing about this thought the whole thing was rather amusing. Taking the viewpoint that, oh, talking about Beetlejuice, that's different. And indeed it is, and we hope that's why you are tuning in, dear listener. And on that Beetlejuice front, I continue to be a little bit unnerved by going out, looking up, and seeing that, wow, it's just not right. Beetlejuice, along with the stars Procyon and Sirius, are sometimes considered the winter triangle. Although I'm not sure why, Sirius is just as bright as as Beetlejuice, in fact, just a hair brighter. So perhaps it really ought to be the winter quadrangle, but no matter, right now, Beetlejuice is not pulling its weight. And I don't know, if you know the night sky and you're standing there in your backyard looking up and, and Beetlejuice is just not filling the space it's supposed to. In fact, I was shocked to note that it doesn't look that much brighter than Gamma Geminorium. You might have noticed that yourself. That's actually the third brightest star in Gemini. It's kind of at the foot of Gemini. It's not that far from Betelgeuse, very close to Betelgeuse. And right now, Betelgeuse is hardly outshining it, even though it, Adhera, Gamma Geminorium, is magnitude 1.9. I mean, people, that's a second magnitude star, not, not the top tier at all. I realize that few of you are shocked by this, but, you know, for those that are, it's pretty shocking. You think anyone's still listening? Craig Bell is. Yes, thank you, Mr. McMillan. Now, as you may or may not be aware, Mr. McMillan is himself an avid fan of tennis. Fan of tennis? He's a high-level player, I understand. And, of course, also a fan. Uh, yes, I, I, I would note for our listeners, you were watching a tennis match, a very exciting one between Rafael Nadal and what's that guy's name? Nick Curious. Curious, yeah. I have to say, it was one heck of a tennis match. Quite a fierce battle, which Rafael wound up winning by a hair. Imagine my disappointment when they conducted an interview shortly after this epic tennis battle, at which point noted tennis jackass John McEnroe, microphone in hand, strides up to the now-victorious Rafael Nadal and asks him about Kobe Bryant. 
first thing out of his mouth. Now, personally, I was hoping that Rafa was going to respond with, well, I understand he did rape that girl, which, which if you look into it, by his own admission, he sort of copped to. Yeah, he was to say later, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I, I thought it was consensual, but I, I can see where she didn't. And I realize it's bad form sometimes to speak ill of the dead, something we haven't shied away from on this show. But, you know, as a pilot, I, I, am, I am sorry to hear about any aviation tragedy. I guess nine people died in this one. That, that, that's, that's a legitimate tragedy. But I also understand that the pilot was coaxed into flying into bad weather by his boss, the basketball star. Now, part of me says, well, at least that's not as stupid as putting your boss under general anesthesia when he demands that you do so, as was, of course, the case with Michael Jackson and his idiot physician. But in that case, pleasing your boss only killed your boss. Or in this case, if, if the stories are true, giving your boss what he wants took out you and your boss and seven other people. Anyway, I'm not trying to be mean about this, but to what do we owe this outpouring of grief over this basketball star? We mentioned on last week's program that at some point in this month, and this being the last show of the month would be the time, but it ain't going to happen, we, we should honor the late, great Isaac Asimov, who was born 100 years ago this month. We're not going to do that because taking a look at Asimov and how much there is to say about his life means we just won't have time to do it today. Maybe next week. But I'm not sure that when Isaac Asimov left this world, he got the same level of publicity as did this basketball star. There's absolutely no doubt that head-to-head, Kobe Bryant is generating a lot more publicity than the passing of Jim Lehrer. And if I may editorialize, I would like to note that Jim Lehrer was a more important figure in America than Kobe Bryant. He was the longtime host of the nightly PBS NewsHour, His serious, sober demeanor made him the choice to moderate no less than 11 presidential debates. His obituaries note, and it's true, that for Lehrer and his friend and longtime partner Robert McNeil, broadcast journalism was a service with public understanding of events and issues, its primary goal. Lehrer once wrote, We both believe the American people were not as stupid as some of the folks publishing and programming for them believed. We were very privileged on this program to have had a chance to interview Jim Lear many years back, although we weren't talking about the subject of journalism so much as we were his newly penned work of fiction. But we did get a few licks in on that topic, and I would gladly refer you back to our archives at radioparallax.com to listen to that if you didn't catch it when it aired. We also mentioned in last week's program we want to do some follow-up on our previous obituary on the late, great Buck Henry. Buck Henry took the book The Graduate and made a screenplay out of it. That book was written by a man named Charles Webb. And because Charles Webb and his wife are such singular characters, I think I need to quote a little bit from the Radar article published about them some years back. To quote from the piece by Louis Thoreau, one of the many strange details of Charles Webb's life is that in 1970 he gave away a big house. It was located in Williamstown, Massachusetts. It cost $64,000, which was a lot of money in those days. He donated it to the Audubon Society. Decades later, I asked him why. I think they had a big bird refuge, he said. I don't know. The author noted that Charles has managed to divest himself of quite a lot of wealth over the years. He's also made a habit of avoiding large sums of money that seemed to be headed his way. After publishing his famous first novel, The Graduate, in 1963, he sold the film rights for the not-so-grand sum of $20,000. 
After the movie became a generation-defining hit, he donated the copyright to the Anti-Defamation League. He wouldn't see another dime from sales again. He published several other books and sold more film rights, yet saved little money for himself and his wife, Fred. He claims to have given away other houses, maybe three or four. He's not sure. When pressed for the reason behind such prodigal acts of charity, Charles can sound a bit vague. He'll say, I can't remember why, or it seemed like a good idea. Thoreau notes that Charles and Fred, she uses no surname, seem to have been guided by an almost holy sense that it is an artist's duty to struggle in poverty. Thoreau notes, I first read about Charles and Fred when I was living in New York in the mid-90s. As someone who clings to material comforts, I found their choices deeply odd. At the time, I was a struggling writer in my 20s trying to build a small nest egg. And here they were, people of my parents' age, world-famous author and his wife, leading a vagabond existence, working as caretakers in a nudist colony or picking fruit. Reading about their footloose, or was it feckless lifestyle, made me feel better about my own lack of direction. At the same time, part of me envied their apparent freedom from anxiety. Was it possible they were on to something? Anyway, it's an amusing piece. I'm not going to quote from it at great length. But the author did track down Charles Webb later in life and said that he told me he disinherited himself from his father's will. I really don't know why. And after he and Fred met, they lived at campgrounds and trailer parks. They homeschooled their two sons, and they worked as dishwashers, house cleaners, and clerks at Kmart. For three or four years in the late 90s, they lived in a Motel 6 in the small coastal California town of Carpinteria. This article does mention that uh, Charles Webb isn't the only artist to wind up penniless. They cite Preston Sturgis, the screenwriter for The Great McGinty. He was the toast of Hollywood in the 1940s. And if you've never seen a Preston Sturgis movie, do your favor and uh, correct that deficit. They note that his early hits eventually led to flops, followed by alcoholism, bad investments, failed marriages, trouble with the IRS, unemployment, and insolvency. More recently, we can cite the example of M.C. Hammer, born Stanley Burrell. He once had a fortune of $33 million, but a $12 million mortgage, and that might be for his house in Fremont, I'm not sure, racehorses, helicopters, and an inability to say, you can't touch this, to his 20-man entourage, laid him low. And thirdly, one I did not know about, Leonard Cohn, at the age of 71, folk rock's most haunting baritone, returned from five years of self-imposed exile in a Zen Buddhist monastery to find that his manager had bilked him out of $21 million. Ouch! Anyway... Back to dueling obituaries. Important newsman Jim Lehrer passes away. Gets a little bit of ink. Kobe Bryant passes away, and they apparently dedicate the beginning of the Grammy Awards to him. Because, I guess you might argue, he played in the same venue at which they were hosting the awards. I'm sorry to say I caught a few minutes of the awards because I was visiting my neighbor at the time, and they had it on. Now, my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that the Grammys are supposed to be dedicated to good music. Ms. Greenland always likes to point out that, you know, good is, is by definition a matter of opinion. So I guess I'm free at that point to say that, in my opinion, what I saw in a few brief clips of these Grammy Awards stunk up the room. So I returned home and flipped on the TV to watch something else, and the something else in this case was the excellent documentary on Mike Wallace. It's called Mike Wallace is Here, and it's definitely worth taking in. I was not aware of the fact that Mike Wallace started out not as a journalist, but kind of as a jack-of-all-trades in the new media of television. He jumped ship from radio. He said in his youth he was convinced he had a good face for radio. 
But it was intriguing seeing him play dramatic roles, to be a game show host, to be a pitch man for Parliament cigarettes. When he finally did join CBS News, <laughs> the people there regarded him as a pitch man. He said he was hazed. But before he went to CBS, he was on another program called Nightbeat. He decided at that point that he was going to make himself into this hard-boiled reporter slash journalist. A role, you could argue, he then decided to play the rest of his life. It kind of struck me that Nightbeat was also a radio program in the 1950s, and a darn good one. It featured actor Frank Lovejoy playing Randy Stone, a reporter for a Chicago newspaper. And yes, it was done in sort of the style of that hard-boiled detective Phil Marlowe type stuff that was so popular back in that era, but boy, it really struck me that, well, at least it occurred to me that it was possible that Mike Wallace was imitating what he heard on radio. Wallace also has a line in the documentary describing how when he went to CBS, they were, quote, the voice of the establishment, unquote. Because I think if the truth be told, if you are a powerful media entity, you're going to at some point be a voice of the establishment or at least a powerful faction of the establishment. We talked about Mike Wallace when he passed away on this program. Joe Barr from Capital Public Radio was nice enough to join us in that discussion, having previously worked for CBS. There's no doubt Mike Wallace was a jerk at times. He certainly admitted it himself, but you know... We need jerks working for the general public, digging news stories out and reporting on them. When Don Hewitt first started 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace and Harry Reasoner, they never imagined that a magazine on television would catch on, let alone, let alone you know, be the, the institution that it has become over the decades. I'd love to see some reporter of Mike Wallace's stature address Alan Dershowitz right now, for example and say, Mr. Dershowitz, you said last week, abuse of power, even if proved, is not an impeachable offense. The framers didn't want to give Congress the authority to remove a president because he abused his power. They have to prove crimes and misdemeanors. Whereas, when Alan Dershowitz was commenting on Clinton's impeachment 22 years ago, he said, It certainly doesn't have to be a crime if you have somebody who completely corrupts the office of the president and who abuses trust and who poses great danger to our liberty. You don't need a technical crime. Anyway, I don't want to say Alan Dershowitz is a jerk, but I did have to laugh when a woman I dated some years back told me that she met Dershowitz in a bar. Yes, she met him sitting at the bar, engaged in idle conversation, and I believe before the half hour was up, Dershowitz had proposed the idea that she join him on a trip to the Caribbean. My, uh, my friend did not go with him. Maybe that explains why he was hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. We need some tough reporting out there, and sometimes it needs to get nasty. I don't think it's so bad, even when USA Today gets in the act. Someone just sent me a, a quote from USA Today about John Boehner commenting on the Republican Party. I'm sad to note this apparently was said nine months ago to not much publicity. Former House Speaker Boehner was attending a Republican Party meeting in, uh, in Michigan and said, there's no Republican Party, there's a Trump Party. The Republican Party is kind of taking a nap somewhere. Said Boehner, Donald Trump, who I know well, was one of my supporters when I was Speaker. I was having a rough week. Trump would call me up, pat me on the back, cheer me up, played a lot of golf together. But President? 
Really? I never quite saw this. Boehner also claimed that Trump himself did not expect to win the election, saying, quote, the two most surprised people in the world that night were Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton thought she was going to win. Donald Trump thought he was going to lose. Boehner noted at least one other person who didn't expect Trump to win, First Lady Melania, saying, quote, I think Donald Trump promised Melania that he would not win. She didn't have to worry about ever living in the White House. It's probably why she doesn't look real happy every day. But, well, well, maybe one reason anyway. A few months after Trump took office, Boehner called most of what Trump had done in office a complete disaster. So I just had to laugh when I heard this week that Lev Parnas, the indicted Ukrainian wheeler dealer, (laughs) has now apparently released a 90-minute conversation he had with Trump. Trump, a man who claims he hardly knows this guy, yet talked with him for a good 90 minutes at least once. John Bolton is apparently coming forward to say, yeah, all that stuff's true. Yeah, it was a quid pro quo. Yeah, they held up aid. Yeah, all that stuff's true. Meanwhile, over in the Senate, they're debating whether they're going to actually call any witnesses and present any evidence besides what the House already came up with. And then in the midst of all this, I turn to the week, one of our main mainstays, our main sources of information for this program, because they do throw everything in there but the kitchen sink, giving both sides of the issue, which is why everybody likes it. You'll read their side as presented in the week and go, well, you're darn right. Their briefing sections are generally excellent, but when I read the one titled The Battle Over Voting, my blood ran a little cold. The subheadline is Democrats accuse the GOP of trying to discourage millions of citizens from casting ballots. Is that true? Well, fortunately, we have a ready answer for that. Yes, it is true. The magazine notes that since the 2010 election, 25 states have instituted new restrictions that make it harder to vote. The measures include shorter voting hours, the shuttering of polling places in minority neighborhoods, new limitations on early voting, especially on college campuses, new voter ID laws requiring a state-issued photo ID to cast a ballot, and new restrictions on election day registrations. All these provisions, Democrats say, have had a very distinct goal, to suppress voting among constituencies that tend to vote Democratic, to which we add Duh! Some states have conducted campaigns to purge voters who have not voted in consecutive elections or have moved or have moved or failed to re- reply to mailings. From 2014 to 2018, 33 million voter registrations were purged nationwide. Dr. Daniel Smith, chairman of the Political Studies Department at University of Florida, said it's shocking. We don't ask gun owners to fire their weapons every two years and revoke their licenses four years later if they don't. Second paragraph is, what is driving these new rules and laws to which the week said Republicans claim the efforts are necessary to combat voter fraud? Numerous studies, however, have shown that fraud, especially impersonating someone else, is extraordinarily rare. After the 2016 presidential election in which 136 million votes were cast, law enforcement officials in 34 states found a total of, wait for it, eight credible instances of fraud. Now, let's go back to that previous statistic. 33 million people have been purged from the voter rolls. Charles Stewart III, an expert on elections at MIT, said research shows that voter suppression efforts might reduce turnout by a percentage point or two. In dozens of recent races, a single percentage point has proved decisive. In Georgia's 2018 midterm elections, Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Adams lost to Republican Brian Kemp by 54,000 votes out of a total of 3.9 million. 
Some voters in predominantly African-American districts say they had to wait for as long as four hours to cast a ballot, while others claim they never received requested absentee ballots. Brian Kemp oversaw that election as Florida's Secretary of State, and he had purged at least 1.4 million votes in the years preceding the election. Ms. Millen points out that Justin Clark, a senior advisor to President Trump's re-election campaign, was recorded at a private event in Wisconsin last November 21st, admitting, traditionally it's always been Republicans suppressing votes. This year, Clark told a crowd of fellow Republican lawyers it's going to be a much bigger program, a much more aggressive program, and a much better funded program, a program to stop people from voting. Well, you have to admit, in 2016, officials in 34 states did find a total of eight credible instances of fraud out of 136 million votes cast. (sighs) Let's pause and do the good, the bad, and the ugly. For this, we are also indebted to the current issue of the week, which noted that this past week was a good week for decluttering. After a Brazilian family cleaned out their late father's cluttered storage room and found Manuela, the family tortoise, she went missing in 1982 and allegedly sustained herself by eating termites, said owner Leandro Almeida, I went white. Well, all I can say to that is there must have been a lot of termites in that cluttered storage room. And they must have been moist termites. I don't know. And it was surely a bad week for American freedom of the press with the news that radio station KCXL in Kansas City announced it would broadcast six hours of daily content from Radio Sputnik, a Russian state media outlet. KCXL's website boasts of broadcasting, quote, the things that the liberal media won't tell you, unquote. Yes, that's right. The Republican Party and its conservative wing and media allies apparently now considers Russian state media to be the kind of thing you want to ally with against, quote, the liberal media, unquote. The mind reels. And it was surely an ugly week for America's over-the-top and oftentimes corrupt legal system with the news that a deaf man is suing Pornhub.com. Why? Well, apparently some of its X-rated videos lack subtitles, which has led Yaroslav Suris of Brooklyn to claim that a lack of closed captions violates the Americans with Disabilities Act and prevents him from fully enjoying such titles as Hot step aunt babysits disobedient nephew. To which I have to add, don't you think you can get the gist of the story without subtitles? Anyway, Pornhub has responded with, quote, we do have a closed captions category, unquote. And finally, we'd have to note it was a bad week and ugly week, both, for sustainable farming, with the news that Polish police determined that a missing pig farmer was in fact eaten by his own animals after he either fell asleep or had a heart attack. Said a neighbor, those pigs are gigantic. 
Anyway, to stay on the topic of the week, I'm holding a briefing in my hand at the moment that came from a week edition published in November of 2003. It was about the billionaires who own Russia. And oddly enough, some of the names that appear in this article have sort of been bouncing around the news here at home in recent years. Now, those of you of a certain age will recall the fact that Russia used to be a communist state. Communism is supposed to look down on the concept of millionaires and billionaires, although, if the truth be told, there always were a few laying around. But at some point, after the fall of the USSR, Russian President Boris Yeltsin decided to change things up a bit. In the early 90s, Yeltsin tried to apply shock therapy to the failed Soviet economy by privatizing key hard currency earning industries such as oil, gas, and metals. A 1992 decree gave every Russian working in a company to be privatized a voucher worth 10,000 rubles to buy shares in that company. But, wouldn't you know it, the task of auctioning those businesses was given to Yeltsin cronies who rigged the auctions to enable them to pick up the businesses for a pittance and who took advantage of the ordinary worker's eagerness to accept cash for his shares. Mikhail Khodorovsky, via his new bank or the first bank they'd had since before the Russian Revolution, Monotep, he was able to buy Yukos, the state oil company, which is now worth $30 billion for, wouldn't you know it, $168 million. When he took power, Vladimir Putin cut a deal with some of these oligarchs. Stay out of politics, and we'll all be just fine. When Mikhail Khodorovsky decided to challenge Putin politically, and <clears throat> Khodorovsky not only had oil money behind him, he owned some of the press in Russia, but, well, we know what happened there. Vladimir Putin doesn't mess around. Of course, a lot of these uh, oligarchs did get involved in politics. American politics. Oleg Deripaska, who in the 03 article was described as owning Russia's largest aluminum plant as well as car and aircraft manufacturing, was just 35 at the time, and uh, has since that time gotten involved with Trump's people, Paul Manafort, etc., Anyway, we don't have time to go into this great detail today, but I was shocked by one of the closing bits of this briefing section, which noted that some were claiming that the crackdowns against some of these oligarchs taking place at the time were inspired by anti-Semitism. Most oligarchs in Russia are Jewish, including Roman Abramovich, Mikhail Friedman, at the time Mikhail Khodorovsky, and Boris Berezovsky. Were these oligarchs entwined with the financial and political fortunes of Donald Trump? Well, apparently so. I suspect we probably would find out some details about that if the Senate ever called any witnesses or presented any evidence. But uh, enough of that. Anyway, I have so much political stuff we could talk about, but instead we're up against it on time. So let us just say that we hope all of you will enjoy the upcoming Super Bowl between the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers. We hope that you will watch it for the game, which promises to be interesting, and not for the commercials. I'm watching for the commercials. You are not. I'm not watching at all. Oh. Well, it's a darn shame. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, at least the first half of which, and we have to take a short break. But after we do so, we will come back and speak with Professor Buddy Levy. 
He's got a pretty good book out, Labyrinth of Ice, The Triumphant and Tragic Greeley Polar Expedition, and we're going to talk with him about it. Stick around. Stick around. 